welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I am honored to be welcoming Matthew Friedman. Matt is a leading global expert on modern slavery and human trafficking with more than 35 years of experience. He is the founder and CEO of the Mekong Club, one of the first international non-for-profit organizations of its kind based in Asia to use a business-to-business approach to fight slavery, bridging the gap between the public and private sectors by helping companies of all sizes to understand the complexities of human trafficking and to reduce their vulnerability within their supply chain and business environments. Matt is considered by captains of the industry to be the leading catalyst of the anti-slavery movement in Asia's business sector. He is also an award-winning public speaker, author, filmmaker, and philanthropist. Matt believes that the collective actions of ordinary people have the greatest chance of affecting real change. Listeners, I challenge you to share this episode with your networks and with your friends. By sharing this episode, you are shedding light on what is happening in today's society around modern slavery and human trafficking. And the more people that know what's going on, the higher chance we have of affecting real change. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. For those listeners who maybe don't recognize your name or don't know who you are, would you mind just introducing yourself? My name is Matt Friedman. I am a person who has been working on the issue of uh, addressing human trafficking in modern slavery for the past 35 years. I'm presently based in Hong Kong, and I'm the CEO of an organization called the Mekong Club, which fights modern slavery, uh, working with the business world. So in preparing for this interview, I did a lot of research, listened to other podcasts you've been on, watching your TED Talks, and one quote that really stuck out to me that I think is so representative of this conversation is, if you don't know about the issue, you can't care about the issue. And if you, if you don't care about the issue, then you won't do anything about it. And when we first talked prior to this recording, you shared your kind of your origin story of how you got involved in this topic. And that for me was that first time of like, I didn't realize what was happening with modern slavery and human trafficking. I didn't realize how extensive it is. And ever since you've said that to me a little over a week ago, it's been nonstop in my mind to tell everyone I know about this. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Would you mind telling the listeners kind of what got you involved in this work? Because no one wakes up one day or grows up saying, I'm going to try to fight and combat modern slavery and human trafficking. Sure. So uh, about 35 years ago, I was living and working in Nepal. I was a public health officer and I was working for an organization called USAID. And my job was to translate resources into healthier people. I had the HIV AIDS portfolio and we were finding girls 12, 13 years old who were HIV positive. Couldn't understand how it is they got that disease. This is a very conservative culture. So we went to go and interview the girls and we heard pretty much the same story over and over again. And it went something like this. A human trafficker, guy around 20 years old, would go into a village, flash a bunch of money around and say, I'm looking for a wife. Don't want an urban wife, want a village wife. He'd find a girl 12 years old, befriend her, go to the family and say, I'd like to marry your daughter. 
They're thinking, wow, he's rich, he's handsome, going to take care of our daughter, going to take care of us. Everyone's happy. A couple of days later, they actually go through a wedding ceremony. The entire community is there. After that, he goes to the family and says, I'm going to take your daughter to the capital, Kathmandu, but don't worry, I'll be back in about three months. But that's not what's going to happen. Instead of taking her to the capital, he takes her to Mumbai, India, to the red light district where the brothels are. When he gets there, he puts her in a room and he says, honey, stay here. I'll be back in a, in a few minutes. As she was coming in, she saw these people milling around in funny clothes, all these men. And she said, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm really scared. No, no, don't leave me. He says, it's OK. I'll be right back. He goes to the madam to get the 500 U.S. dollars for having sold her to the brothel. He has the gold from the um, marriage and he hands the wedding pictures over. He then leaves to go back to Nepal to do this again and again, maybe 40, 50 times in a year. The madam then goes into the room and says to the girl, guess what? Your husband just sold you to me. You're going to be with 20 guys a day every day because I say so. You can imagine her shock. No, no, no. My husband loves me. No, that's what happens. When many of these girls kind of internalize what's happening, many of them say, I'll kill myself before I do those shameful things. I'm a good Hindu girl. When uh, madam hears this, and she basically says to the girl, um, is this your family in this photograph of the wedding? Is this your mom, your dad, your brother? You hurt yourself. We're going to hurt them. So she's trapped in this situation where she's forced into prostitution. In order to make her into a prostitute, it's quite simple. You simply shame her. So they bring in a couple of professional rapists. And over a two-day period of time, they'll take this 12-year-old girl, rape her 20, 30 times until she just lays back and accepts whatever happens to her. After that, she's put on the line, which means that she will be with 20 guys a day, every day, until after a couple of years, she's so depleted physically, emotionally, and spiritually that nobody wants her. So they throw her out onto the street. Some of these girls languished in India, died of AIDS. Others made it back to Nepal. So I was hearing this story over and over again, but I didn't understand the evil of it until I actually went to those brothels. I was invited by the Indian government to do public health checks. I had a police officer with me, We'd go from brothel to brothel, went into one brothel and an 11 year old girl who was in the brothel saw me, literally ran up and wrapped herself around me and said, save me, save me. They're doing terrible things to me. As I looked down at this child who was hysterically crying, wearing a dress 20 sizes too big, because she was a child in an adult's world, turned to the police officer and said, we need to get this girl out of here. She, he said, we can't do that. So what are you talking about? You're a cop. Says if we try to leave, we'll both be killed. To make a long story short, we left. We came back with a lot more police, but of course she was gone. Now, I tell this story because, as you said, I wasn't one of those 15-year-olds that said, when I grow up, I want to be an activist. In fact, I did everything I could not to be. But every once in a while in life, we are tested. That was my test. I should have found a way to get that girl out. I, I failed miserably. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And then I eventually did what a lot of activists do. I surrender to the fact that now that, you know, I've been exposed to this, I can't turn it off. This is what I'm going to do with my life. And 35 years later, here we are having this talk. So that's kind of my introduction story. There were others, but this was the most pivotal milestone that brought me into activism. When people hear the term modern slavery, can you define what that is? Because I think some individuals have one image while others think about it you know, completely differently. Can you kind of level set for those who can think of a definition to define what define what's going on currently? Well, let me first 
uh, talk a little bit about human trafficking because human trafficking and modern slavery are pretty much the same thing. 30 years ago, there wasn't a term to describe what I just described. And so when people saw this phenomena all over the world, they said, we have to call it something. So initially they called it human trafficking and they called it trafficking because trafficking equates movement across borders. So uh, what happened was we were seeing a lot of girls going from Nepal to India or from Cambodia to Thailand. So they called it trafficking, kind of like what drug trafficking is. You take the drugs, you move them to another place, sell them or arms trafficking. In this particular case, the commodity was human beings. So moving a person into an exploitative situation was the definition of human trafficking. But over time, people said, well, wait a minute. Sometimes you see a person go from one country to another, sometimes from one district in a country to another district. Sometimes a person goes from one side of the street to the other and gets exploited. Shouldn't we focus on the exploitation, the outcome of this? And so when they look for the terminology or words that reflected when a person doesn't get paid, can't, get, can't leave the situation. Uh, there are threats and uh, beatings and debt and all kinds of terrible things. The word that closely fit this the best was slavery. But then a lot of people said, well, wait a minute, slavery happened a long time ago. So they put the word modern next to it. So modern slavery defines the phenomena where a person is trapped in a situation, they can't leave, they don't get paid, and so it's a different form of slavery. It's not the type of slavery where people were in chains and went from boats to countries and so forth. But what holds them in place is threats and debt and many other things. And so the outcome of human trafficking is modern slavery. So those terms are often used interchangeably. And like you said, talking about the girls, how the threats to their families, whether that's real or not, they don't know. And when you think about individuals in factories, they might get lured in thinking they're going to make $50 a day, but the housing to stay is higher and they're indebted. And this is like a cycle that keeps happening and they don't know better or they get trapped. And this also doesn't just happen to females. And I think that's a big thing that I realize when we think about human trafficking, I thought it was mostly females and that's not the case with modern slavery. It happens to everyone. I thought that was interesting when I've heard you talk about how boys from villages will be able to make money on a fishing boat, but then they stay for years trapped. So when you know this is going on, what are governments doing? Because they obviously know this is happening within their countries. What steps are they taking to help diffuse the situation? Well, let me start off by just talking a little bit more about some of the victims that you talk about. There's 40 million people estimated to be in modern slavery. 25 million of them would be in forced labor. And as you say, a disproportionate number would be men. So women and men are both involved, but uh, in equal levels, you would have both men and women in this type of situation. Part of the problem with uh, Asia, where I am, is that uh, people are so afraid of losing face. So let's say that you're from Myanmar and you go to Thailand and you uh, are a guy and you get caught on a fishing boat and the fishing boat goes out for four years and you have these terrible conditions and awful things happen to you. When you go back to your community, you don't say that's what happened to me. You come up with some other description. And the reason for that is that if you did say that, you'd lose face. And face is everything in this part of the world. 
you feel embarrassed or you feel stupid or you feel ignorant if you make a mistake so you don't talk about it. So what happens is all these migrants who end up going to another country come back. They've been trafficked, but they don't say it to anyone. So how do you then convince future migrants not to do it if you have nothing to turn to to say, look, at, as a result of going to Thailand, all these people found themselves in terrible circumstances? That's one of the biggest issues that governments face. How do you prevent something that people don't think exists because nobody wants to talk about it? What came to mind is like the generational trauma and the trauma that no one is talking about that is infesting these cultures because of that saving face that you would think that they would want to prevent that from future generations experiencing what they went through. But that is such a big part of their culture. They don't want to seem weak or talk about it. That has to be a hard give and take to try to eradicate this larger issue. So one of the things that we do in order to get around that, and one of my favorite interventions, is to come up with a soap opera uh, that basically addresses the issue of modern slavery. So first of all, if you have kind of an expert person like me get in front of a group of people and try to talk about human trafficking, it's too theoretical, it's too esoteric, it, you know, they just miss the point. But if you have 10 hours of drama where you have the mom and the dad and the pop and the uncle and the trafficker and everybody, and you show different scenarios of what happens to people who do the right thing and protect themselves and a person who gets trafficked and then when they come back, they lie about it. Then the community is able to internalize it in a way that they can understand because storytelling is an amazing way of conveying information in this part of the world, probably more so than any other uh, technique. And so uh, as a donor, when I was uh, funding programs for, you know, a, a limited amount of money, you could come up with the best uh, writers, the best actors and actresses. And then you could come up with a 10 hour session. You could put it on television or basically you could just put it on a DVD or, or uh, a, a thumb drive and then people would watch it over and over again. Uh, I was in Myanmar and we had a. Uh, one hour uh, movie that talked about this. And we went to a remote village that didn't have any electricity. We showed the movie three times in a row. The people didn't move. They watched it three times in a row because they just didn't have any entertainment. They didn't have any information. And to have this show up there was enough to really sensitize them. You go to them afterwards and they said, oh, my gosh, had no idea. But it takes the face out of the issue because they're not talking about Joe Smith over there, you're talking about a person on the screen and you can see what happened to that individual. And that individual doesn't care about face because he's an actor. That's fascinating to me that that small little kind of role playing and acting is what is actually being more helpful than any mm -hmm. kind of government programs or posters or anything like that. It's really allowing them to kind of take that experience if they went through it or might know, and watch it almost like detached, but be able mm -hmm. to relate better. In 2012, you started the Mekong Club, which is the first international non-for-profit organization of its kind based in Asia to use a business-to-business -business approach to fight slavery. Mm -hmm. What motivated you to finally start that? Well, out of the forced labor people, 
Um, 60% of them are associated with supply chains. A supply chain is basically where our food, our electronics, our clothes, our fish come from. And the way is the supply chain works is you have the top of the supply chain is where you assemble things. And then you have individual factories that, uh, let's say it's a running shoe. So the top tier is where the running shoe is, is assembled. Second would be the shoelaces and the rivets and the sole and various things. And the other would be the raw material. In those supply chains is the possibility of sweatshops. And so when we knew that a lot of victims were associated with these supply chains and the supply chains are associated with the private sector, we said, okay, well, we need to go talk to the private sector. So when I was still working for the United Nations out of Thailand, I would fly up to Hong Kong to talk to the captains of industry. And I'd sit down with the banks and the retailers and the manufacturers and the hotel people and ask them what they knew about human trafficking. And many of them said, well, you know, don't know much about it. So I would describe it, get into the cases. Afterwards, they'd say, oh, I see that there's a business risk. But guess what? I want to have a conversation with you. You come from the United Nations. You guys are naming and shaming types. You're going to embarrass us. So I had enough of these trips back and forth. And then a number of organizations said, listen, we need an organization to work with us to help us to understand the issue of human trafficking so we can protect our businesses. Now, it's really important for people to understand that businesses are uh, very allergic to anything that could be perceived as exploitation because it gives them a bad reputation. The banks are concerned about this, the manufacturers are concerned about this, the retailers, and so they will do whatever it takes for that not to happen. So the Mekong Club works with these businesses, helps them to understand the vulnerability within their business and then we help them to put in safeguards and strategies to prevent it from happening. And if they find it, we also work with them to help stop it. So I think when most people think of modern slavery or human trafficking in companies, they usually think of supply chain, those of retail manufacturers, sweatshops, that kind of comes to mind. But that's not always the case. Can you explain more about how this does affect both the banking systems, law firms, like all these other businesses that listeners might be listening to this and say, that doesn't happen in my company, but you can't cross it off the list. Yeah, I was in Singapore and I presented to a pharmaceutical company. And afterwards, almost in a smug way, they said, well, we were really happy to have this presentation, but you know, we're a very sophisticated uh, company. We train people. We have educated people. We pay high salaries. We don't really have to be concerned about this. So I turned to them and I said, well, who distributes your drugs? And they said, well, we have third-party contractors. Have you ever looked into them to see whether or not there might be exploitative situations? No. Two weeks later, they called and they said, oh, we found that there were excessive exploitation among these people. They weren't being paid. They were forced to do things. Thank you for pointing that out. Similar thing, I went to a law firm and they said afterwards, we're a law firm. We don't have supply chains. We don't have any kind of issues associated with this. Who cleans your building? Don't know. They looked into it and they came back and said the same thing. When it comes to the banks, it's a little bit different. The profits generated from modern slavery are $150 billion U.S. dollars a year. Second only to drug trafficking, which is $300 billion. This is a huge number. If any of that money gets into a legitimate bank, it's money laundering and the bank gets fined. One bank in Australia was fined um, 1.3 billion Australian dollars because they allowed online 
sexual exploitation of children video payments to take place. They were warned about it. They didn't do anything. They got fined. That created a tremendous reputational risk. It had an impact on their reputation. Their sales went down. Their, their client base went down. And so these businesses have to be concerned about addressing this because if they don't, it can have a devastating impact on their business. So you just said $150 billion, right? I just want to make sure I mm-hmm. heard that. That's a lot of money. Where is that money going? Like it's got to enter some bank system or how are we able to monitor it? Because that's a lot of money. You can't just like put that under your mattress somewhere. Like where is where are those funds and how, I guess, do the banks trace that back to what's going on? So what the banks do is develop what's called a typology. What a typology does is it takes the victim and the perpetrator and it walks them through the scenario of all the steps that these people go through. And then they look at the transactions that could potentially take place along that continuum. And so once they look at the transactions, they say which transactions could potentially be nefarious or related to human trafficking. I'll give you an example. In the United States, there was a nail salon chain run by Vietnamese people. And uh, an accountant saw that there were transactions taking place at two, three, four o'clock in the morning, all around $200. Now, the business was supposed to be open at nine till nine. So what are these transactions? When they looked into it, they came to realize that there was a sex trafficking ring in the same location. So the red flag indicators in this particular case would be transactions after hours of around $200 in a particular type of business. If you take that packaged kind of information and apply it to the big data that the bank has, you can find other patterns so that you can use this as kind of a forensic attempt in order to find out whether or not other criminals are using your banking system. The moment you find that out, you report them to the regulators and you off bank them. And so the reason why, I I don't know if you've opened up a bank account recently. Years ago, you could walk in and 15 minutes later, you have a bank account. These days, you have to go and give all kinds of proof uh, that you're working. You have to give proof of uh, your historical background. They will check you to see if you have any criminal behavior because if you are a criminal and you're banking with them, they get into trouble. So it's the same concept, but at a much bigger level. That's fascinating that based off of like history, we're able to take that framework and put it against. And I guess one positive of modern technology is the quick turnaround to be able to Mm -hmm. red flag. What are three things that you wish everyone knew? What are like the starting blocks when you want to get involved and make a difference and raise awareness? Like what can we be doing? Because after I got off the call with you, I was just one really disturbed that this is happening in today's day and age, that this is not on the news. This is not getting covered. This isn't really talked about. And I'm sure it's because it's a super uncomfortable topic to talk about young girls being raped 20 or 30 times a day. But unless we do something about it, it's not going to stop. 
Well, you rightly pointed out awareness raising is the essential ingredient. And as you said, and this is my statement that I use a lot, if you don't know about an issue, you're not going to care. If you don't care, you don't do anything. So I often get in front of audiences and uh, do a presentation. And 20 minutes into the presentation, I say part of the reason why we are not reaching enough people is because awareness raising is so low. How many of you knew even 10% of what I was talking about before I said it? And I usually only get one or two hands. And so it's really essential for us to really kind of have a blueprint in our mind of what is modern slavery. So I do about 175 talks a year. And what I try to do is to instill in a person's mind within 50 minutes what is modern slavery, human trafficking? What are the case examples? How many people are involved in it? What needs to be done to address it? And what can you do as a human being in order to, to stop this particular issue? And so at the end of these talks, I often say to, to them, um, you know, out of the 40 million people who are estimated to be in modern slavery, uh, last year, the world helped only 100,000 which is 0.2% of the victims. And it's been consistently that for the last 10 years. And the reason for that is there's only about 20,000 people like me who are fighting against a half million greed incentivized criminals. The profits generated from modern slavery, as you heard me say, $150 billion. The amount of money that's available to address this is around 350 million, which is 0.23% of the profits. So we have very few people very few resources to go after a problem that's massive. So the only way to really address this is to get people to say enough is enough. This is unacceptable. You know, we can't be doing this. And that's why awareness is needed. But once you've heard one of these talks, once you've internalized it, often people say, well, what can I do? Well, one thing you can do is tell five other people. If you tell five other people, you've done five things. You can be a responsible consumer before you go and buy products on uh, at your favorite short, uh, branded shop. Go online to see whether or not they have a policy related to this. If they do, congratulate them. If they don't, you know, say, listen, I like your store. I like your products. I'd feel a lot better if you had a strategy. You can do it in a very respectful way. You can volunteer. There's all kinds of opportunities. 70 people volunteer for my organization, all walks of life. They want to give something back. They feel like there's a sense of purpose. Or lastly, donate or raise money for organizations that are doing this. These are all things that if we could get enough people doing would add up to something quite big. So a few years ago, you launched the campaign Be the Hero. Can you talk to us about that? So uh, once again, I'm in front of an audience. There's 100 people in the room. After my talk, about 10 people come up to me and say, wow, there's something about this topic that is, is dear to my heart. I can't turn it off now that I've heard it. What can I do to help? Now, the reason why this happens is we don't pick our causes. It's not like you have a bunch of causes and say, I'm going to do this or this. Our causes pick us. I didn't choose to do human trafficking. It chose me. Something about that particular issue is in my DNA. And when I hear about it, I keep getting drawn in. For my sister, it's animal rights. She doesn't care about human beings. She cares about animals. For my brother, it's uh, the environment. So there are all of these different causes out there. And like the human trafficking cause where we're not having much of an impact, when it comes to global warming, when it comes to girls' education, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to animal rights, 
In all of those cases, we are just having an insignificant impact because there's not enough people to really address the issue. So the Be The Hero campaign was to try to help people to understand that you have a cause. You may not know what it is, but go out and find out what it is. After you've figured out what your cause is, you have to stop your mind from talking to you to say, you know, I want to do something, but I'm too busy. Or maybe I have nothing to offer. Or maybe if I start this, I won't like it. So there's this dialogue that goes on in a person's head. And so, you know, in the book that I wrote about this, we talk about how to get over that discussion. But once you do and you cross over the line from just caring about something to doing something, that's when you become heroic. So we've redefined what heroism is. Heroism isn't necessarily running in front of a bus to stop a child from being hit. Anything that you do that is a selfless act for which you have no kind of uh, expectation of getting anything in return, I would say is heroic. So any kindness, any kind gesture. So we need to basically kind of congratulate and support and validate these things to say, whenever you do that, wow, attaboy, you know, that's great. You, you helped because that encouragement encourages more of that type of activity. So much of this is to just make kindness heroic and then to promote that as a means of contributing to making the world a better place. I could not agree more. That's what this podcast is about. I believe in having guests from all different backgrounds, walks of life, um, talking about causes that matter to them. And I hope that listeners get involved and listen to an episode and, you know, I'll put your website and everything in the show notes. And if a listener's really moved by what you are talking about, I hope that they make the time because if not now, then when, and this is definitely not a problem that is going away. If anything, I think it's getting worse. And those who are partaking are getting smarter on how to fool the system and keep this going. And we have the responsibility to our fellow human beings to make sure that we help them when mm -hmm. they can't help themselves. I truly believe that. In 2017, you won the prestigious Asia Communicator of the Year Gold Award because mm -hmm. you gave over 800 presentations to more than 80,000 people, mm -hmm. including leaders in the Vatican, kind of all over. That's a lot of people to be talking to. And what did you really learn from all those presentations? What were some of those main questions or takeaways that you learned from talking to people from around the world about this? Well, I mean, a lot of people who do public speaking think it's a one-way um, kind of presentation. You present to the audience. But what I try to do is to be a lot more interactive. I do my presentation, and then I really hone in on the question and answers at the end, because I find that the question and answers helps me to understand what the audience is thinking. What are their biases? What are their concerns? What are their skepticisms? And so... Um, much of what I really try to do is to ensure that I have that time. And you get all kinds of uh, discussions. I have people who immediately say after I do a presentation, everything you say is just bull. It's just not real. And so I try to engage those people with, you know, here's some information. Go check this out. Other people will walk away saying, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, now that I've seen this, what can I do to help? And so you try to engage those people. Um, and everything in between those two extremes. So for me, public speaking is just a means of identifying among all those 80,000 people, 
what percentage of them self-identify this as being their cause. And then I try to reach out to those people and give them the information and the resources and the means to be able to be ambassadors to others to address this. So if you work in the government, you can influence the government. If you work for the private sector, you can influence your company. If you work as a teacher, you can influence your students and other teachers. So uh, as an activist, I'm always trying to find people who share my um, passion for wanting to address this particular issue. Now, as you say, some people consider this topic to be too sensitive, and so they don't want to hear it. My point is, listen, you know, you don't have to experience this. All you have to do is listen to some descriptions. But we as human beings have to feel some of the pain and suffering of what's happening in the world. We can't turn away from that. And those people who allow themselves to experience this may feel uncomfortable initially, but afterwards, they begin to reflect upon it the same way you said you did after we talked uh, the other day. You started to think, wow, I don't know about this. I should know more about this. And then you go and you collect information. That's exactly what we want people to do, to begin questioning, to begin asking more uh, questions, to be exploring the Internet, looking for references, reading articles, looking at videos until they get to a point where they say, wow, this is unacceptable. I feel like I need to do something. And then they ask the question, what can I do? And then we give them those suggestions that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Well, it's interesting. After we got off the phone talking, I called my dad immediately. And I was like, did you know about this? Did you know this is happening in modern society? Like, as we speak, this is going on. And he was like, no, I'm like, I just can't believe this. I was at dinner with girlfriends on this Friday night in Chicago at a nice restaurant. like, do you know about this? Like my future podcast guests had this experience with 11 year old girl. Did you know this is going on? Aren't you angry about it? Like I just, it's coming out with every person I talk to even earlier before this recording, I was getting my nails done and told my nail guy, like I have this gentleman coming on. This is what he does. Do you know that this is going on in today's world? And he's like, no, I don't. Can you send me the episode when it's aired so I can share it out with other people? Because this is ridiculous. How do we not know about this? Why is this not in the news? And it is kind of like a fire. Once you start sharing this and educating people that this is happening, how can you not do something? How can you not share this information? Because to me, it's a no brainer. Education is power. Yeah, let me let me just talk a little bit about the United States. Uh, so when I go and present in the United States, I often have people say, well, that happens in Asia or that happens in Africa, or Latin America. According to who you believe, the estimate of people in modern slavery in the United States is somewhere between 400,000 people to a million people. And that's because people are drawn to the United States. Many of them come in illegally. They're under the radar. And as a result of that, they can be exploited very easily. The average age of uh, kind of streetwalkers, people, children who basically are forced into prostitution in Atlanta, Georgia, is around 13 years old. So we're talking about young people. Many of them are runaways. They are uh, kind of engaged at the bus stations and the train stations by the pimps. They're befriended. They shower them with affection and love initially, and they develop a kind of a trusting relationship. And then he forces her into prostitution. So we're not talking about something that happens far away in a faraway land. It's right in your own communities. In fact, I was in Bangladesh and um, I was working in the embassy 
And I had uh, somebody from the embassy come and say, can you come over? We have a case that might be human trafficking. So I went there and I said, what's the case? And they said, there's this guy and he has this young child. We don't think that they're a uh, father and son. And I said, well, what, uh, where are they going? And they said, Connecticut. Oh, that's my state. Um, we're in Connecticut, Newington. That's my town. What's the address? They gave the address and it was literally two miles from where I grew up. This kid was going to be brought to the United States and then work in a home to basically be the servant for this uh, Indian family that was that was going there. So it really does hit home. Not only the people who are coming from outside to the United States, which are there are a lot of people, but also Americans who get themselves caught in this situation where they're tricked and deceived into uh, sex trafficking. And it happens to a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, most 15-year-old girls don't wake up and say, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. It just doesn't happen that way. It's a terrible, horrible thing, despite the fact that you might talk yourself into it because you saw the movie Pretty Woman. It's not glamorous. There's nothing about it that's anything other than horrible. No. And what I learned is one of the biggest occurrences of human and sex trafficking that occurs in the United States is Super Bowl weekend, wherever the Super Bowl is. And when I read that, I was shocked that it's not talked about more. I know like slowly they're starting to talk about it and athletes are trying to raise awareness about it, but it's, it's so in plain sight and we're just so consumed in our own worlds, we're not realizing it. So my next question really is what should we be looking for if we see something? What are those kind of key things that we should in the back of our mind keep in you know, the forethought. Yeah, you know, uh, um, in 2016, my wife and I did a road trip across uh, United States. We started in Seattle, went down the West Coast, and then to Texas and up to Chicago. 70 consecutive days, 115 presentations, reached thousands and thousands of people. But one of the things that really struck me was at many of those presentations, often it was generally a woman. A woman would come up and say, you know, I was at that bus station. I was at that supermarket. I was at that train station. I was at that airport and I saw something that didn't feel right. I'm a parent and I saw that guy or that woman with that child. It didn't seem like there was a relationship. She was dressed different there. So there are indicators that you can, can, can see. And many of these people said, well, I regret not doing anything after hearing your talk. I wish I had known what to do. Now, uh, if, if you see something that looks really uncomfortable, if you see a situation that you just think that it, it could potentially be wrong, there are hotlines that you can call. There's a national hotline. You might want it, to. It's run by an organization called Polaris, and it's a 1-800 number. Um, you can call them up and give that information or, you know, just go to a kind of a security person who is there and say, you know, I think that there may be something here. They can decide whether to intervene and how to intervene. But when you walk away from that and you have that suspicion that you allowed something to happen that was wrong, then in some ways you're part of the problem. You know, it's really important for us to to be concerned about this. So that's why hotel people are trained to look for these signs. People on airplanes or working in airports are trained to do this. Um, You know, uh, social workers. Uh, People within hospitals are trained because often trafficking victims are beaten to the extent that they need hospitalization. And so there are certain signs of 
that type of abuse that you can ask questions to determine whether that person is being exploited by somebody else and so forth. Those are the things that are there that need to be um, kind of trained or, or taught to people so that they can protect uh, these individuals who are out there. And I believe you and your wife are doing another tour in the United States and in Canada this September. Can you talk about where you will be? So if any listeners want to see you, they kind of know what cities you're going. And I'll put a link in this episode show notes so people can look that up too. Yeah, we we, uh, start uh, on uh, the the 10th of September. We'll be in Vancouver. Then we'll go to Toronto and then to uh, Ottawa. And then I'll fly down with Sylvia to uh, Atlanta and Chattanooga and North Carolina and then we'll hit Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania, and then Connecticut. Um, this will be 53 consecutive days. We'll do probably 70 or 80 presentations and just try to get in front of as many groups as possible. Most of our talks would be for private sector companies. This would be for the banks and for the manufacturers and the retailers and the construction companies and so forth. But also we will be meeting a fair number of government officials to help them, for example, in Canada, we'll be talking to parliamentarians and senators. They have some legislation that's coming up. And so they've asked for some expert advice on what's my experience around the world related to this type of uh, um, thing. Uh, a certain percentage of them would be taped and they would be available to uh, people who are interested. So they can just contact me and I can send links to those kind of things. But once again, it comes down to awareness. These events allow for us to raise awareness and then to offer the audience what they need in order to become champions or heroes in addressing this, either within their personal life or within their professional life. And you have written several books. You and your wife have done different films. One was nominated for an Emmy. Do you see yourselves doing another film anytime soon or do you have plans to write another book? Because as you said, awareness is key to helping this problem. Yeah, I recently worked with a guy named Murray Watts. Uh, He's a screenplay writer. We we came together to write a a movie script. Um, You know, when you hear about human trafficking movies, they're often like taken. You know, but, you know, the father's daughter gets taken and he goes and he kills all the bad guys and gets the girl back. I mean, it's it's. Human trafficking is the basis, but in reality, it's just not the reality of what happens and how it happens. And so we wanted to write a a movie script that would be balanced, that would show how a person finds themselves in a situation, what happens to them in a real way. But to not have it be so black and white that all the criminals are bad and all the victims are good, you know, in reality, there's a mixture of all kinds of different dynamics. So that's one project we're working on. My wife is working on another project that's based on comfort women, you know, where you uh, basically have Japanese um, um, government uh, forced women into prostitution uh, during World War II. And she's juxtapositioning the the modern day slavery with that slavery. And so uh, she wrote a film script and she's in the process of getting that made. Um, and we will continue to write books. I, I had a novel that just came out, uh, Dancing in the Light of the Moon. It's based in India. But once again, I'm using drama as a means of reaching people. So the novel is uh, kind of describes based on 10 years of research that I did in India, 
kind of a typical scenario of uh, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And we develop characters that are kind of, um, you know, a combination of different interviews that I had as the protagonists. And we use this as a means of just helping to uh, educate and inform people. Um, Where Were You uh, is a book that just came out, um, A Long Road to Justice, Profiles from the Frontline is another book my wife did, Be the Hero. We write these books because it encapsulates our years of experience in a way that allows us to convey to people messages that we think are important and messages that a lot of people are looking for. I'll just say one thing about this. A lot of people that I meet feel that there's a certain emptiness or lack of purpose in their life. They go through life feeling like, I wish, you know, I'm getting paid good and I have a pretty good life, but I know that there are these things out there and I feel like I want to get involved. And what these books try to do is to inspire people to get over that and to cross over the line to actually getting involved and doing something. And to me, that's the kind of issue of our time. How do we ignite a sense of responsibility with people around the world that they need to figure out what their causes and join in. So if 10 million people did small, compassionate gestures, that would add up to something quite big. And that's really what we need to do because the world needs a lot of healing, especially post-COVID. And I think it's contagious. Like you do something good for somebody else, someone sees it, and then they go, I can do something too. And it's like a domino effect We just need those people to start it and to really step up in their friend groups or in their family or in their networks. And we post everything on social media, like what you're listening to, what you're eating. Why not post causes that you're helping or showing you're volunteering or trying to get a group together to do something positive? It's such a small piece of the whole puzzle, but I think it's what will end up making us so much better. You know, I uh, um, committed myself to doing one year of posts on LinkedIn related to important, relevant topics. About 60% of them are related to human trafficking. Some of them are on leadership. Some of them are nostalgic stories. But that's 520 words a day. I'm almost 200 days into doing this. And the reason why I post on this is exactly what you said. You know, to look at human trafficking from... 200 different approaches, 200 different stories, 200 different variations. And as a result of that, I think my community is around 6,000 people that read every day. I probably get about a, uh, somewhere around 100 to 150 likes. The likes aren't important, but it's they, the they are. Yeah, because basically each time a person likes it, it amplifies it. So the purpose is, is not to, not has nothing to do with me. It's about helping to raise awareness about the issue. And what I find amazing about it is I get messages every day. I had no idea. I've been reading your posts. Oh my gosh, what can I do? I'm a banker. I am a manufacturer. I work in the government. Uh, you know, my, my church is interested in this. What can I do? So it's an amazing way of reaching out to people who self-identify that this is something that they want to help with. So as a means of doing good, social networking when you take on serious topics, and there's nothing superficial about modern slavery, it's very serious, and then you engage people can be a great way of really getting those people to step up and be a part of the solution. I love that. 
And I think we're connected on LinkedIn, but I love LinkedIn. I find a lot of the podcast guests off LinkedIn because it is now not only, yes, it's a networking platform, but it is also turned into a platform where people are starting to talk about causes they care about. And they're willing to say, you know what? Yes, I might work for this company, but like I care about this cause. I'm holding people accountable. You say you're going to do better, do better. Or companies are saying, we hear the feedback. We're going to look into this. We're going to create programs or, you know, make sure we're not adding to the problem, whatever it is. It's a phenomenal place. And a lot of thought leaders like yourself and so many others are sharing more information around social causes that matter, that just that little piece of information and you like it, it amplifies that message so much faster, to be honest. Yeah, yeah actually, the, the when I was in Bangladesh, we were dealing with two-year-olds that were being trafficked from Bangladesh to the Middle East, uh, boys. Now, you basically ask the question, what can you do with a two-year-old? They don't have the manual dexterity or the concentration to do repetitive work. So what do you do with them? You put them on the back of a camel. Why? Because if you put an infant on the back of a camel, they kick and scream. And what does the camel do? It runs. So they race camels. They use infants because they are light and they won't slow the camel down. Assuming the child reaches the age of five, and a lot of them don't because they fall off and they get trampled, they start to slow the camel down. They're gaining weight. So they take these little boys and throw them out onto the street. So at a time when a lot of five-year-old boys are starting kindergarten, you have a five-year-old in a foreign country, doesn't speak the language, has to fend for himself. You can imagine what kind of a situation that child is going to have. So this is just another variation on the theme of what people get trafficked into. And there's so many different variations of this. Yeah, we have to do better. We have to do better. There's not a question in my mind. I am looking forward to working more closely with you. Any way I can help or volunteer, whatever it is, like sign me up. I'm game. This is something that has really struck a chord with me because even just hearing that is shocking and appalling. And there's a lot of other words that I won't say right now that are coming to my mind because it's just like I, yeah. Please, we'll connect more after this, but I want to get involved and help any way I can because this is not okay that this is happening in the time that we're currently living. Yeah, I mean, I like to tell a story uh, that kind of encapsulates my thinking on this, uh, and it's the actual title of the book, Where Were You?, and it's based on that. And the way the story goes is like 30 years ago when I was in Nepal, I desperately wanted to do something to help address the issue of modern slavery. So I decided to go interview the women and the girls who had been in forced prostitution. I went to one of the shelters and there was a girl named Gita. And every time I approached her, she said, no, 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 I'm not interested. But as I interviewed everyone, she sat and listened to everything that was being said. When I finished and I was leaving, Gita comes running up and says, I changed my mind. You can have my story. But that's great. So Gita sat on one side of the table. There were a number of us on the other side of the table. And over a three-hour period, she just told the worst story I'd ever heard of rape and torture and disease and murder and betrayal. I was shocked. I had never heard such a horrible story. I didn't know what to say. Finally, I turned to Gita and I said, wow, Gita, you must be so angry at those traffickers for the horrific things they did to you. She paused and paused. And then she said, no, I'm angry at you and you and you. She pointed at us. She said, where were you? She said that every day she woke up praying for somebody to come and help. Nobody came. 
She said she went to school till she was 12. She knew that everything that was out there was right out in the open. Nobody was doing anything. She said she wasn't angry at the traffickers. They're just bad people being bad people. Said she was angry at the good people, at society for not caring enough to allow a 15-year-old girl to be commercially raped 7,000 times, only to eventually get AIDS and she was dying. So I tell the story because she pretty much called us all out. She recognized that the people like me were insufficient to make a difference. In order for this to really go away, the world has to say enough is enough. Slavery in this day and age is unacceptable. It's 2022. We shouldn't have 25,000 people entering modern slavery a day. We shouldn't have women and girls, uh, 4.8 million of them commercially raped, you know, six, seven, eight, 10, 20 times a day. And this is yet something that happens. I, I don't know what to say to people in order to say, how can you not consider this to be one of the most relevant and important topics of our time? You know, if a single rape happens in the United States, people freak out. These people are commercially raped. You know, they are in a situation forced against their will in a situation where they can't get out. When do we get to a point where we just say it's not acceptable to turn away it's not acceptable to say, I feel uncomfortable, so I don't want to uh, uh, be exposed to this. We as human beings have to feel their pain and then step up and do something to help. So that's that's what I do. And that's what my wife does. And that's what we try to do is to just convey, you know, this is what's out there. What are you going to do to help? We need you. Yeah. Well, you got me. I'm in like whatever I can do, because like you said, I don't want to have to think when I get into my comfortable bed at night and have the luxury of having a roof over my head and everything like that, having someone metaphorically sit across the table asking like, where, where was I while this was happening? I want to be able to go to bed knowing that I did what I could to raise awareness or did what I could to help even one person. I hope listeners and everyone who listens to this, we can help more than one, but like Let's help these people that need our help because we're in the position to do so. And that's really where my mind is right now. So I'm excited mm -hmm. to work more closely with you and your wife. I know your wife's going to come on the podcast at a later date, but really mm -hmm. whatever I can do, I'm on board and I'll get people, I'll gather my friends and really spread the message because like you said, we can do something without a doubt. Mm -hmm. I end every episode with the final three questions. The first mm -hmm. question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? It's basically the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's just about being respectful and kind and treating people the way I want to be treated. It's just a very, very simple phrase. Uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are in. It's Every religion has its own version of that. But uh, kindness, compassion, dignity, respect, uh, treat me that way and I'll treat you that way. And if we did that, a lot of the issues and the problems would go away. I agree completely. The second question, if you could relive any one day, what day would you choose? Well, two days before my mom passed away, I had a conversation with her and uh, I she was about to go in for an operation and she said to me, oh, we, we can talk later. I'll have the operation and everything will be fine and we can talk afterwards. I wish I could relive that day because I never really had a chance to have that last conversation with her. 
Um, and it's always been something that has been very heartfelt. Uh, you know, she had the operation. It was successful. But two days later, she had a blood clot and she uh, had a cardiac arrest and she died. So I wasn't able to really have kind of a goodbye for my mom. So it would be that. So sorry to hear that. May your memory always be a blessing for you. Mm-hmm. The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? You know, I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of really good, <clears throat> excuse me, inspirational songs. But the one that I would describe now would be Don't Worry, Be Happy, Bobby McFerrin. It's just a, it's just a, a very sweet innocent, cheerful song that just kind of reminds us, don't take life so seriously. And that's from a guy who takes life very seriously. You know, don't worry about the situation. Be happy. Get up there. Do what you need to do. Be passionate. Be inspirational. Do all of that. But do it in a way that uh, has joy in your heart. You know, I'm not I, I'm not there to make people feel bad. I want them to feel happy. But you can feel happy by coming to accept the fact that the world needs you and the world can benefit from you. And once you start doing that, you will be happy you, yourself. People don't realize that people who do kind acts or volunteer or get involved, the endorphins go off. It's kind of like a good run. We feel really good. You feel really happy, really supported. And at the same time, you're addressing something that will help either the planet or people or animals or the world. So, um, you know, it's, uh, the, the other thing is that I, I think a lot of people just obsess with little things uh, in life. You know, I, I'll just tell one last thing is I was um, in Bangkok and there was a big raid and rescue and a lot of the girls uh, were, were taken and I was there for the intake interviews. And one particular young woman, she was like 15 years old, said, okay, this was a horrible thing. It's really bad. It happened to me, but I'm going to move on. I want to go see my family. I, I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Even despite everything that she had gone through, she, she had developed some defense mechanisms. Two days later, I'm in New York City and I'm at a conference and I needed some supplies. I went into a, a, a pharmacy and there was a line of three uh, people there. And one of the persons felt like somebody else got in front of them Literally, it would have taken one minute to go through all of us. It created a big stir and everybody got upset. And you could almost feel like, you know, this was an, a major a historical breach of justice that was happening right in front of me when, in fact, it was a tempest in a teapot. And I juxtapositioned those two experiences where somebody who had such a horrible thing happen kind of just got on with it. And other people who have defense mechanisms that are triggered at the slightest thing. There has to come a point where as human beings, we just get over those kind of things. It doesn't matter. It's not important. You know, don't worry. Be happy. No, I love that. That's so true and such a good way, I think, to end this episode. But I'm going to add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify theme song playlist. So hopefully listeners not only listen to your theme song, but others, but, you know, maybe end the playlist on that song because that's a great mantra to live by. So Matt, thank you again so much. I look forward to working more with you and your wife to see how I can get involved and share this information. It's so important. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your morning to speak with me. And thank you again. Happy to do so. Thank you for the opportunity. Keep doing what you're doing. It is making a difference. Oh, thank you.